We're in Revelation chapter 19. As we come to, uh, not the end of the book of Revelation, but the end of the tribulation. Um, and it's one of those funny things that, you know, as we've been studying all these things about the great tribulation, we come to 19 and it's the end of the tribulation. And then we got a few chapters more and, and it's like, wait, this just keeps on going, you know, and, and God is dealing with mankind. The great tribulation is a huge shaking of mankind um, that's going to come to a close. But there's one more that will take place next week when we get into chapter 20. Uh, as much as mankind and the rebellion of man is being dealt with during the tribulation, there's still a little bit left that uh, will be dealt with next week. So what we've seen uh, recently is in chapter 17, the judgment of the spiritual Babylon, or the, the Babylon that is the false religion. Uh, it becomes a worldwide religion, and it has le led all of the people of the earth that have not come to Christ into spiritual adultery. That they have worshipped the Antichrist, they've worshipped his image, and uh, this religion has been used by the Antichrist and by the false prophet and by the ten kings that will follow them. Uh, but not that they, they don't believe a word of it. They're using it. Uh, it, it. To them, it seems it's a way to get to the hearts of people, right? And the, the thing that John saw of the woman riding the beast, well, the beast is the Antichrist, and the woman riding the beast is the false religion. And it's going to appear like these ten kings and the Antichrist and the false prophet are all under the authority of this religion. This is their higher calling. This is their higher purpose. Oh, they're not out for themselves. They're just servants, right? They're just using it. And they will use it completely up. In fact, in the end, it will be desolate and destroyed. Uh, it's described as being burned with fire. In verse or in chapter 18, we saw the judgment of the economic Babylon. Uh, that there is a city, and there's some things that point to Rome. Other people think, oh, there's actually two cities, that Rome is the spiritual center. There'll be another one that's the economic center, whichever it is. The city is going to be the center for all trade in the world. This city is going to become massively wealthy and powerful, and it's going to be kind of the crown jewel in the Antichrist's fake crown. To say, well, look at what we've accomplished. Look at all the power that we have through this city and through the, this, the mark of the beast, which is how all things are bought and sold, right? It's all part of the economic system that's created. But that city that it is all centered in is going to fall in a day. It's going to seem like it cannot be stopped. In fact, uh, as the picture of the city itself says, I am a queen and I am no widow I shall never see sorrow. That there is like this unstoppable arrogance uh, about the power of that city, and yet it will all be lost in a day. Um, and never to be rebuilt. It's not like it's a bad event took place there. An explosion happened. There was some chemical spill. It's completely wiped out and desolate. And never again will the sound of joy or music or work ever be heard in that city again. It will be lost forever. And in that, we uh, see that things are, are now falling to pieces for the Antichrist. Um, and really, chapter 19 is going to pick up right after that. This is one of those times where the chapter breaks 
just uh, don't make sense to me. Uh, the people that put them in, of course, they're not inspired. It's not like the Lord went, and chapter 19, right? It was the people later on, and it makes sense uh, of why they did it, but there are places where I'm like, why is this chapter break here? Because it really takes away from what's being done. But in chapter 19, we're going to pick up right after that judgment of Babylon and see heaven is rejoicing after perfect justice has been served. And again, it's I think some people have a hard time with this because we look at the death and the destruction and the chaos that is taking place in the tribulation and even in the fall of the city of Babylon, and we go, that seems pretty harsh. But again, keep in mind that God has been warning mankind, warning the whole earth, every tribe, every language, every tongue in the world, repent. Don't fall for Babylon. Don't go the way of of this world system because it will all fall. He's already explained and and told and begged the world to repent. And so when justice falls, it falls quickly. And we've seen that throughout Scripture, right? We see that in the flood of Noah. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that in the rapture of the church, that there is a time when it it takes place, those, those judgments or those events take place, and once they've happened, there's no going back, right? But it is not that God has not given more than enough opportunity for people to change their direction. And really, as we've seen with the whole tribulation, this is God dealing with the heart of all mankind. The idea that we don't need God. And that's what we've really been seeing with Babylon, right? That Babylon, the heart of Babylon is the, the heart of man's rebellion to say, we can be wise, we can be spiritual, we can accomplish, and we don't need God for any of that. It's, it's an absolute rebellion against God. We don't want God, and we don't want anything from Him. Well, the tribulation is the Lord saying, wish granted. You, 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 don't, you won't get anything from me. And He just draws back His protection on all of mankind. It, um, I have all kinds of silly analogies that keep coming to mind. I'm going to avoid them because they're a huge distraction. But it, it's like, okay, one, it's like the spoiled... <laughs> The spoiled teenager, right, that's at home going, I want my way and I want to do my stuff. But they're, they're overlooking all of the things they've been given, right? I get to make my own decisions and I'm 18 now. And I can remember being that 18-year-old and my mom going, great, move out. <laughs> pay your own bills. Pay for your own vehicle. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not get crazy about this, right? That's like all of mankind. God, we don't want you or anything from you. Okay. And he removes the sun, <laughs> kind of important, and water, and, and all the resources. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are you doing that? Well, if you don't want me, you don't get any of my stuff, right? And that's really the whole point of the tribulation. It is the last dividing line for mankind. You must make a choice to be for Jesus or against him. But it's your choice to make. Now in chapter 19, we're going to see the the apex of that, where all of the lost are brought together to one place, those that remain on the earth, to the famous place and battle of Armageddon. So let's pray one more time. Lord God, how we need to hear from you and how we need you to apply these things to our lives. You know right where we're at and the things we struggle with and the things that we're battling Lord, give us your wisdom of how 
to uh, avoid these same traps that we are seeing the, the people of earth fall into. We give you this time, and we give you ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to take it in a couple big chunks here because there's not really a great breaking spot. So verse 1, chapter 19 says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Alleluia, Alleluia, excuse me, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were a voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of a mighty thundering saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and re rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These sayings, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am a fellow servant and of you and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Again, I, I just don't think there's meant to be a chapter break here because again chapter 18 we see this huge victory and it reminds me or makes me think of if you were watching a sports movie you know and you've got the two teams and they're competing maybe in football or whatever and it's down to the wire and it's tense and who's going to win and finally the guy makes the winning catch and crosses the into the goal and right then the credits start you'd be like what well i mean yeah i get it they win but there's no cheering, there's no, you don't get to see the reaction of the people. You just, that's it. And that's how it seems when you go from chapter 18, <laughs> stop, chapter 19. Because a huge event has taken place in chapter 18 that has caused all of earth, or excuse me, all of heaven to rejoice. Again, this is the foundational rebellious nature of man that was seen well, it's been seen all the way, but it had a high point at the Tower of Babel, there in Babylon. It's gone all the way through the ages and has now reached its, its apex there with the city and the false religion and the ec economic structure of Babylon during the tri tribulation. But keep in mind, from heaven's perspective, the angels and the saints who are there and the Lord himself, has been watching mankind through all that time. And they have seen individuals and families and marriages and churches that they desperately love torn apart by that spirit of Babylon. 
over and over again. Just think about our own lives, people you know that you have seen fall into that rebellion and the destruction that's come upon their lives and their families and how heartbreaking it is because you care about them. How much more for the Lord himself, for the angels in heaven who have watched throughout the generations. And, and again, it, there are times that they seem to prosper. They rebel against the Lord. They have all this horrible stuff that they're doing, and they seem to be making great money and, and getting everything they want. Inside, I believe they're just finding themselves more and more empty. Just like the city of Babylon seems to be unstoppable until it all comes to the end. And this evil has been a cancer in mankind throughout all of the ages. Now it has finally been judged and the crowd goes wild because it's taken place. Heaven explodes with praise because it's finally done. It's powerful. And, and I don't want us to lose the context of what's taking place here, right? That this judgment upon Babylon is huge. And John says, after these things, a loud voice, a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. We're suddenly back in the throne room of the Lord. 24 elders are there, the four living creatures, all the saints, all the angels, and they're all rejoicing as one. And again, we kind of get a little glimpse of that. If you've been at a big concert or a big sporting event where there's thousands of people there and suddenly everyone erupts, you get that roar. And it does sound like, like a waterfall or even like thunder. It's so massive. But this is absolutely in unison they're saying the same thing. John's like, it's huge. You know, he can't hardly put it into words. A multitude in heaven. And they are singing with one voice or shouting out with one voice, Alleluia. Alleluia is a Hebrew word. It simply means praise the Lord. Uh, it's used four times here in chapter 19, and it isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. Hallelujah is a word that we you know, kind of translate or use in its place. But this word is, is Hebrew. And I think it's interesting because, again, not to get too sidetracked on this, but what are they rejoicing about? The rebellion that's been taking place all the way back to the Tower of Babel, right? And so it goes further back than the New Testament language of Greek. It goes further back than the other languages. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, where all the languages were created by God to disperse people. And I believe the one language that remained the same was Hebrew. And they, it's, like a, it's just a callback or a, a, you know, pointing back to that, that event as all of heaven says hallelujah. Um, again, this is an overwhelming amount of praise. And I believe it, it's also good for us to see the huge contrast. Over the same events in chapter 18, where all the kings of the earth and all the merchants of the earth and all the people that became wealthy as their trade upon the sea were mourning and weeping, throwing dust on their heads and, and crying out for the loss of Babylon. Not for the people in Babylon, not for the death of the people, for the loss of profit. And again, that's a huge thing we need to understand. They don't care about the people. They're upset because they've lost something. 
While earth is mourning, heaven's rejoicing over the exact same events. In verse 2, again, heaven really points to two things as they're rejoicing. First, that true and righteous are his judgments. God knows exactly how to judge justly. And, and while we go, yeah, of course, we believe that. We believe that God judges justly. Uh, I, I think we can all come to places, low points in our, in our faith where we're like, does he? This doesn't seem right. This isn't how I would do things. And while that seems like a little bit of an innocent I- idea, or certainly it's something we all have in common from time to time, we need to also understand how deadly that idea is if we, don't, if we let it take over. I think I mentioned this about a month ago. I watched this, uh, this uh, gentleman who had done a study on all of these supposed Christian influencers and, and you know, big-name people, and some of them were authors and some were musicians. And over the last few years, there's been some big-name Christians who have completely walked away from the faith. Just went, that, I was wrong about everything, never mind. Even though I wrote all those books, even though I said all those things and, and led all those uh, seminars, I was wrong about it all. And they just walk off. And he did this study on their lives and what led up to those events, and it all began, they all began in the exact same place. And he went even further back to historical, other historical people way back. It all started with one idea. God is unjust. All of them. That was the one thought that they went, God is unjust in his judgments, therefore I won't believe in him. And, and that took them down a completely destructive road. And so heaven points to God's absolute and final justice. He knows it all. He sees it all. And while we get just a glimpse of things, we think we've got the full scope of what's taking place or what's happened in a person's life or what we are you know, taking in in all of our wisdom, we're just, getting a, we're just scratching the surface. He knows it all. And because he knows it all, he is able to just or judge justly true and righteous are all of his judgments and as as they speak about why babylon was judged because she has corrupted the whole earth with her fornication and again we've talked about this before it's a spiritual spiritual adultery that's being referred to here well there's probably a ton of immorality that was taking place in that city and and being sold out of that city as it listed all of the things that we looked at in chapter 18 the things that were sold from the city, the very last two are the bodies and the souls of men, which points directly towards human trafficking and prostitution and pornography. So there's plenty of immorality. But the idea of the spiritual fornication is to worship anything but Jesus. Worship yourself, worship money, worship power, whatever it is, whatever you want, that's fine, as long as it isn't Jesus. And that's been what's promoted above everything else. Also, she, to those that refused, that's what they were selling. Those that would worship Jesus and live for him, she persecuted and killed them. The blood of his servants was shed by her. And so she was judged, again, with perfect justice. And I think that's an important thing that we understand. As we've seen through the whole tribulation, God begging mankind to repent. 
God's desire for each and every person is that we would not perish, but that we would come to repentance. He desires to give mercy. He desires to give grace. But if we refuse that, the only thing left is justice. But again, it's our choice. We can choose one or the other. He wants to give us grace, but he will not force it upon us. He's not going to make anybody go to heaven if they don't want to. And so a person is like, no, I don't need your grace. I'll, I'll be judged by my actions. That's, a, that's the last thing they want. They don't understand it, but no one will have good enough actions to receive heaven. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So not only is heaven rejoicing for what's taken place, the judgment over Babylon, and why, they're rejoicing for what's next, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is a, this is a day, well, as we'll see, it is so sure to happen. It is given as an absolute fact. And this is a day I try and picture it in my mind, you know, what this is going to look like. And, and I really do picture like a huge banquet, right? And just as far as the eye can see, just people from out time that have come to Christ and we're all there and every tribe and color and language and everyone, and we're just getting to fellowship and we're like, tell me about when you got to know Jesus, you know, sitting across the table from somebody we've never met in heaven. And maybe there's other people, you know, you're Moses, what's up, man? You know, I've heard about you. And we get to just talk with all these people and at this marriage supper. And it is a celebration of joy with such an intensity and such an intimacy that it can only be likened to a marriage feast, right? It's not just a potluck. I'd be a little bit disappointed. I mean, potluck's great and all. Don't get me wrong. But if this was the, the potluck of the lamb, I'd be like, hmm, you know. But this is the marriage supper. This is like beautiful intimacy with the Lord. And the heaven, again, is rejoicing because the time has finally come. Now, in the Hebrew culture, there were two major stages in marriage. There was the betrothal, and then there was actually actual the, the marriage or the wedding, right? And they were usually separated by a fair amount of time, sometimes a year. Could be a little bit more or less. But when the betrothal took place, the husband, or the, the groom, would then spend the time preparing a house for him and his bride, right? Very often it was attached to his family's home, was like an extension or whatever. But either way, that's what he took that time for. And then at an hour, she did not expect he would come to her house and whisk her away to the wedding feast. I love that. I wish we still did that. Because it, was, it sets the whole tone, right? I mean, he's working on the house. She can see the house is just about done, right? So she's getting ready, making sure the wedding dress is out because he could show up at any time. It's going to be a big surprise. And then he would actually lead this like procession of all of the people in the wedding. And, and they would come through the town. And of course, other people would see what's going on. They'd join the procession and they'd come to her house and he'd call out to her, right? Love it. So romantic. It's exactly what the Lord describes his return to be for us, right? 
that he has gone away to prepare a place for us, and he will come in an hour we do not expect. See, we're, we, the church, are in the time of betrothal right now. The master's gone away. He's preparing the place, and he's going to come for us. We need to be ready, right? And we can look around, and we can say, yeah, things are getting pretty close. <laughs> things are getting pretty crazy. Man, the Lord's return has got to be soon. Um, and so it all is just this beautiful picture. But this is the point of it. This is, this is where he's taking us to, right? That what we're reading about today is the wedding feast that he's taken us away. Things have all been made ready. And the church has been the bride that has prepared. Um, and it says, his wife has made herself ready. I think this is an important part because I've heard people misquote this section of Scripture or misuse it. To say, um, well, to make ourselves ready is to, to be holy, to live a life of holiness. Well, those are the right words, but very often it's the wrong attitude, right? Because when they say holiness, what they're talking about is a whole bunch of rules that they've created and things that they think other people should do, and that's what's going to make you holy, and that's how the bride has made herself ready. No, that's, that's not it at all. Um, and we see that actually in verse 8 where it says, it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen. It wasn't, it wasn't something she earned. It wasn't something the bride did. It wasn't the rules we kept and, and the things that we did, the hoops we jumped through. And again, I've heard people say, well, it says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And again, so they look at their little list and here's my righteous acts. Here's my whole list of stuff I'm supposed to do. Again, that's completely missing the point. The only righteous acts we can possibly do are those things that are done in Jesus and for his glory. And every one of them has been laid out by him for us. Again, we wouldn't have seen it. We couldn't have planned it. We would have done them for the wrong reasons. Ephesians chapter 2 says it like this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? And I think it makes it so clear. We are his workmanship. He's doing the work in us. We're not creating ourselves. We're not making ourselves beautiful or worthy. He's doing that work in us. He has made us worthy by what he has done upon the cross for us. And he has planned it out for us to do good works in his name, but he's laid them out in front of us that we can walk in them. Right? Again, it's all his work. We, our only thing that we do, this is, a, this is the only thing the bride could do to make herself worthy or ready or righteous is to submit to Jesus. That's all we have to do. Lord, I just submit my life to you. Do whatever you want in me. Change whatever you want in me. Take me down any road you want me to go. Put me to any work you would have me do, Right? Submitting to his will, giving up our own, this is our only job. Now again, there's a lot of uh, events, there's a lot of things we've talked about that are kind of anticipated, they're still in our future, but I think the marriage supper of the Lamb is the major one. It's the one that, man, it's, it's the fulfillment of so many things. And it's really amazing, I think it's even hard for John to take these things in. And so the angel tells him in verse 9, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Blessed seems like too small of a word. <laughs> Again, picture ourselves there at the marriage supper, people everywhere. We're, we're in heaven, man. I mean, there's the angels and there's the Lord. And, and you look across the table and go, you know what? You're blessed. It just doesn't seem like enough, right? <laughs> Super blessed. I, I don't know. It's just got to be something bigger. But the idea that the angel is saying, look, nobody is going to regret whatever they have to go through to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Any sacrifice that we have to make, even if it's our own lives, no one is going to go, man, you know what? I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> Everybody's going to be stoked to be there. Um, and again, to make it just absolute, that this is a clear and absolute promise. He says, uh, these things are the true sayings of God. And again, it it's, doesn't quite translate deep enough. The idea is like, you can be more sure of this than you are of anything else in all of existence. This event's going to happen. This marriage is going to take place. This wedding feast is going to happen, and you are going to be blessed to be there. And you can be more sure of that than anything else you've ever known in your entire lives. And John's so overwhelmed by this. See, John, I think, gets it. We're, we're, we're trying to get it. We're trying to get our minds around it. But John is right there. He's seen all this stuff happen. And he, he hears the call that the marriage supper of the Lamb is about to take place. And he's so overwhelmed by it, he falls down at the feet of the angel and begins to worship it. Now, we don't understand. Maybe it was because of the information he had been given. Maybe it's because the angel was so glorious or because heaven itself was so glorious. that He was just overwhelmed. It really doesn't matter. I just love the fact that the angel goes, hey, knock that off. What are you doing, man? I'm just a fellow servant with you and all, everyone else who's a believer. And, and again, I think this is a cool thing that shows us a little bit about angels, right? They don't want worship. In fact, they refuse to accept it throughout Scripture. If an angel, if anyone even bows down in respect, they're like, don't do that. That's too close to worship. Don't even act like you're worshiping, right? That they see themselves simply as fellow servants with us. Um, and I, I think that's, that's a cool thing, man. We're, we're working shoulder to shoulder with angels that we don't even see or know. And poor John is just so blown away by all he sees. He's just trying to take it in there. Oh, sorry. Okay, you know, stands back up. All right, verse 11. <clears throat> now things are going to get intense. It says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him, on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with him, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he was, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his armies. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast in the lake of, lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And the birds of the air were filled with their flesh." The Battle of Armageddon. Enter the King of Kings. Everything that describes Jesus here is with absolute authority. And if you remember, this is very similar to the description John gave when Jesus first appeared to him at the beginning of this book. That his eyes were as a flame of fire, and out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword, and all these things. But this is, this is the, the end of of the tribulation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Not that anything has changed. Not that he's different. Not that somehow he's evolved into something else. This is the side that has not been seen in the Gospels. And we see the huge difference between Jesus' first arrival and his second. When he first came to the earth, it was to serve and it was to save. It was to show the heart of God, the love of God towards all humanity, that forgiveness was available. He did not come as a conqueror. He came lowly and humble. But when he comes again, he comes in righteousness to make war. It's a huge difference. And again, it's not that he changed. It's not that he like snapped and lost his temper. This has always been his character but this just has not been seen until now. And I think it gives us some insight to why people in Jesus' day were so confused about what the Messiah was going to be like. Because we read about it here and we go, oh yeah, we get it. He comes back, he sets all things right, he deals with mankind, he deals with the rebellion, and now he's going to rule and reign. But in Jesus' day, those that study the Scriptures... It was confusing because in Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, there's the description of the Messiah coming to rule with a rod of iron, to rule all the nations, and his kingdom will have no end. And so they're going, that's the Messiah we want. We want the Messiah that's going to come and deal with Rome and deal with, and is going to bring the whole nation of Israel right along with him. They didn't understand the difference between his first coming to bring salvation, and his second coming to bring justice. Even at the triumphant entry, as the people gathered there and they're singing out Hosanna, and they, they were looking for him to come in as the ruling Messiah, right? In Hebrew culture, again, when the king was going to make war, he would ride into the city 
on a white horse. It was a proclamation that the time of war had come, and it was kind of telling everybody to make themselves ready. And they wanted Jesus to ride in on a white horse, but instead he rode in on a donkey's foal, which is the sign of peace, that he wasn't there to conquer. He was there to bring peace. But now he is sitting upon a white horse. And this is why John makes a point of it, that heaven is open, and behold, a white horse. Now to us, we go, oh, that's nice. You know, we picture the, the, the hero on the white horse. But just the statement to the Hebrew people, to the believers of that time, would have sent chills down their spine. The time for war has come. The king is riding the white horse. He who sat on him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Again, this is the revelation, the full authority of the king of kings. The offer to grace or of grace and for repentance and for forgiveness has been held out, but now war has come. And this angel calls out to the birds, and this is gross. I mean, there's no way around this. This is just one of those things you're like, that's pretty horrible. He calls out to all the birds of the earth to gather to this place where a battle's about to happen because everyone who shows up is going to die. And, and sure enough, they do. Verse 19 says that the beast and the kings of the earth and all of their armies gather there to make war against Jesus. Now, there's some other things. In fact, we've already looked at a few of them that tell us they may be coming to that place to, first of all, make war against each other. And once they're there, then they decide to go to war against Jesus. It's a maybe, right? But it does make sense because a lot of things have gone really horrible underneath the Antichrist leadership. They seem to look good for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, right? And he'd done all these things and seemed to bring people together. Um, but since then, well, first, I guess things have been going bad from the beginning, right? We had a worldwide earthquake. We had uh, asteroids hitting the earth or something hitting the earth causing all of this destruction. There was, you know, the people that were raptured, the chaos that happened after that, all of the judgments that have taken place. But the last ones, the bold judgments, were some biggies. They kind of like overshadow everything else. All of the seas have turned to blood. All of the drinkable water, every spring in the world has turned to blood. The sun is acting super crazy because it seems to have gotten darker and hotter that it's scorching people, but there's hardly any life. And so it's like, again, like we've talked about, it's just the earth is shutting down. God is stepping back, turning out the lights as he leaves. And, and along with all of these things, there's been another earthquake, largest ever in the history of the world, where mountains and islands just disappeared. So there is very few resources. And through all of that, the human population has been dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. And the last amount of people are now gathering together to this place, I believe, to fight over the last resources that are left. We're told back in chapter 16 that the Euphrates will be dried up to make way for the kings of the east, right? That they're going to use that like a highway to get to this place, the region of Megiddo, which is what we call Armageddon. It's an area. It's a place. Famous place. And over the history of mankind, there have been at least 200 major battles that have taken place in that area. 
Huge, huge battles that have happened there. When Napoleon saw it, he looked out over it and said, all the armies of the earth could navigate here. And this is where everyone will be brought together. As I said, possibly to fight for resources, possibly to deal with the Antichrist, because the kings that have followed him have, have not been happy with the results. <laughs> Nothing's worked out. Um, either way, all these armies are brought together to this one spot. And the Lord appears along with all of the armies of heaven. That'll be us. It'll be all the saints. I believe all the angels as well. Although we don't do anything. I mean, we, we show up. We're on white horses. This is pretty dramatic, pretty amazing. He does all the work. And, and it's really not much of a battle at all because he just grabs the Antichrist and the prophets, false prophets, throws them into the lake of fire. And I think what I love about this is, again, we can kind of get the, the idea sometimes like there's this perfectly pitched conflict between good and evil, right? That's how it's always presented in everything from comic books to movies, right? That there's this perfect balance of good and evil, and, and they just can never overpower one another. That's not how it is at all. God is not somehow equally matched with Satan. Jesus Christ is not in this like wrestling match, just almost sitting on, you can't get it, and then back and forth. When Jesus wants to, he shows him like, you and you, boom, you're done, right? And it's that easy. He allows evil to exist because it serves the purpose of giving mankind a choice. But now that choice is done. Or at least for this age of man, it is done. And they get thrown in, uh, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they get special treatment. Because, again, not to get too far into this, but there is a place of torment now. Jesus talked about it when he spoke about Lazarus and the rich man. And that the rich man was in this place of torment. That's the temporary place of torment. Then there's going to come the white throne judgment, which we'll see in a little bit. And after that judgment, either people will go to heaven or go to the final resting place of torment, which is the lake of fire or outer darkness, it is also called. Neither one of those sounds good. These two get to be the first residents there. They get to bypass the white throne judgment and they go right there. Lucky them. Now, again, I wish this was the end and we were saying, okay, we're not going to see anything more of man's rebellion. Unfortunately, the rebellion of man is not quite done. Even after all of this, it's not quite done. And there will be one more time that we'll look at next week where God deals with the last little bit that remains. Again, the challenge for me is I look at this and I'm like, man, what does this mean to us? Where, where does this apply in our lives? And as I was thinking about this, again, this is the end of the tribulation. All this stuff that we've talked about has all been the worst time in the history of the world. What could have avoided or how could mankind have avoided all of this horrible stuff? The demons and the plagues and the wrath and the death and destruction, how could it, could it have been avoided? Yes. And it only required repentance. That's all it required. It only required mankind to humble themselves and repent. And that's it. 
There wasn't some horrible, long, you know, qualification or anything that they had to do that was almost impossible. It was just repent. All we have to do is repent. And this is where I believe our application comes. For each and every one of us, we have our struggle. It's not as intense as this, but it is intense in our own lives, right? And unfortunately, too often we dig our feet in and we're like, nope, this is my thing. This is what I'm doing. This is part of my character. This is part of my personality. And uh, Lord, I know you're maybe not that happy with it. Repent. Man, it's all it calls, it's all he calls us to do is just repent. Man, be be right with the Lord and, and let that pride and that arrogance that we see in, in Babylon and we see in, in all of mankind throughout the tribulation. That's the same pride that's in us. And if we don't let it go, it leads to the same place of destruction. Man, the Lord doesn't call us to something impossible. He calls us to simply repent and to trust. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we are so blessed by your love and your patience with us. Lord, we're we're a people that so easily goes off course and goes off track, and you just bring us back time and time again. Give us a heart to repent, to lay down our pride, to humble ourselves, to be honest with you, to be honest with each other, Lord, and to lay down our sin and, and repent. God, use us to bring the good news of your love to the lost in this world. And in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, God, make us the shining light of your good news to this lost world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.